Dear Father, we thank you for this epistle uh, from John. Uh, we thank you that uh, as the first century was coming to an end, the Holy Spirit put it on John to write this epistle so that we would have this fantastic doctrine uh, that we can plant our feet firmly on. We pray that we might come to better understand all that John had to teach uh, by the inspiration of the Spirit and that we might apply it to our lives as we learn to focus our love on you and not on the world. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. So we are finishing up our first cycle, Life, Light, and Love. And we have learned that God is life, he is light, and he is love. And this is the source of all of these things. And now John has, for a moment, turned his attention to an exhortation to the young men, telling them to avoid worldly love. That is the thing that has the ability to knock them off the course of maturity, to keep them infants in Christ. So this morning is worldly love. We want to look at what it is, how we avoid it, and what the better alternative is. And our main idea for the mo this morning then is that dynamic knowledge of God's word is the only defense against the attacks of the evil one and the temptations of the world. This is why we preach doctrine here, not warm, fuzzy feelings, because when the enemy comes to attack, warm, fuzzy feelings are not going to help you. But doctrine will. Something firm and something solid you can set your feet down on. The promises of God. And you see, these promises of God come from his love for us. He has not left us in this world to fend for ourselves, but he has given us his word. And so we stand on his word. The believer who never matures in the word never matures at all and will be hopelessly lost seeking something eternal in a temporal world. If you are a believer, if you have put your trust in the salvation of Jesus Christ, then you are of a different world. And there is nothing here for you of any eternal value but to serve the Lord in his will and pile up rewards in heaven, things that are of eternal value. So we want to do a little review spiritual maturity, according to John. He wrote what appears as a little hymn right in the middle of his book, and often a writer will do this, especially a Hebrew writer will do this, so that you'll remember what he is saying, so that you'll ponder it and think about it, something you can even put to a tune in your head and sing it over and over again, coming to a deeper and better understanding of it. In other words, this is something he wants us to meditate on to consider, to really pull apart and think about. He writes, I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. This is positional truth. This is our position in Christ. This is something unchangeable. The moment we are saved, this is signed, sealed, and delivered, awaiting the unpackaging in eternity. There is nothing anyone can do to change their position in Christ. Once you are saved, you are saved forever. And so he calls them technia in the Greek, children, born ones. Once a birth has occurred, that birth cannot be undone. You are children of God because he has forgiven your sins. This brings you into the family of God. And everything from that point forward is not dealing with a judge. It is dealing with a father. And so John continues, I am writing to you fathers because you have come to know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. And I wrote to you children because you have come to know the father. He's dealing with different levels of spiritual maturity. In the Greek, these Masculine words, father, young men, children, are just the default. This is speaking of the spiritually mature, the spiritually maturing, and those who have yet to begin their spiritual maturity, but are promising, just as a child is a promising individual who will become an adult, so long as nothing knocks that child off the course of proper maturity. 
That is what John is dealing with here. And in verse 13, he gives us his pattern. Because in verses 14 through chapter 3, verse 3, he's going to follow that pattern and give us more detail about these fathers, about these young men, and about these children. And he begins in verse 14, giving us more detail about these fathers, these spiritually mature ones. Now, if you remember, a father can still have another father, and that father can have a father. Being a father in John's levels of maturity does not mean that you are over everyone else, but it means that you are in a position where you are spiritually responsible. You are spiritually mature enough to nurture others. You are spiritually mature enough to be trusted on your own. In verse 14, part A, he says, I wrote to you fathers because you have come to know him who has been from the beginning. Now you might ask, what's the difference? Verse 13, I am writing to you fathers because you have come to know him who is from the beginning. There is no difference. Why is that? Because John is not telling them they need to do anything more. It is exactly the same. They are to maintain the course. They are to hold the course. They are mature in him and they will continue to grow in him. But by doing exactly what they are doing, learning to rest in him, that faith rest life of the believer, they have reached that level of maturity. They are not easily swayed. They are not easily moved off course. The lusts of the world don't attract them anymore. False doctrine doesn't interest them. They stand on the word of God and they trust in his provision. The book of Philippians deals with believers who are mature because without being a mature believer, you cannot have any settled joy. You can have temporal joy and it will grow as you mature in him. But joy in the Christian life comes from spiritual maturity. Philippians 3, 7, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ, Paul says. He continues, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This is a mature believer a very mature believer, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I might gain Christ. You know, H.A. Ironside puts it very well. And I don't often quote such long quotes, but I thought this one was just too good not to share with you. He says, how do you get to know a person? By living with him day by day. How do you get to know Christ? by living in intimate fellowship with him throughout the days and years. You know him as you look up to him through the clouds of sorrow and he ministers so graciously to the heart. You know him when in the midst of joys, the joys of life, you put Christ first and find your chief joy and gladness in him. To know him, this is to be a father in Christ. He does not add a thing to that not a word of exhortation. And why? Because that or what could be added. Think of going to one to whom Christ is everything and saying, my brother, let me give you a kindly word of warning, a word of admonition. Try to be careful that you do not drift off into the ways of the world. Oh, he would say, the world has lost its charm for me since Christ has filled the vision of my soul. When Christ becomes the one object of the heart, nothing more can be added to that. That is what delivers from the power of the world. That is what saves from carnality. And that is what keeps from jealousy and envy and everything else of the flesh. When Christ is all in all, these things will not be. Now this is a very special kind of person, but it is available to all of us. I mean, I had the joy of knowing someone who just perfectly embodied this. To her very last day, she was just joyful to know the Lord. And what a lasting impression that leaves on others. What nourishment that is to younger, less mature believers. 
to see a believer who is so occupied with Christ that the world has lost its flavor. There is nothing left in the world that is going to tempt them away from Christ. They just love him and knowing him, this is a father in Christ. Paul continues in Philippians verse 12 of chapter 14 or four. I know how to get along with humble means and also know how to live in prosperity. You see, both can be just as challenging. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And we all often quote this verse, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. But what is Paul talking about? Spiritual maturity. God's will. It can be followed as he strengthens you. Your will, and in the pursuit of your will, God does not strengthen you for that. That is a sad and sorry road to walk. And many of us think that that's what God is there for. He's the guy behind the candy counter, just waiting to give us treats, anything we desire. All we have to do is name it and claim it. That is not the God that we know in Scripture. But rather, for our wills to be subject to his, we will find perfect joy even in this life. But then in following his pattern, he turns to these young men. Now notice he doesn't have any criticisms of the way that they are acting, but he does have warnings to those who are less mature in their faith or to those who are new believers. First, to those who are less mature in their faith, he warns them not to be seduced by the world. He says, I wrote to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, we dealt with this a little last week because last week he told them, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And we looked at this word overcome and saw that John usually uses it in a technical sense of positional salvation, but here he is not. Only here and in 1 John 3, so that so far as I have found, or 1 John 4, does John use it in a sanctification sense, in a second tense salvation, our spiritual walk. Because he elaborates here. I wrote to you, young men, because you are strong, the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Yes, they overcame the world the moment they believed because Christ has overcome the world. But they have let that work its way into all of their limbs, all of their spiritual limbs, so that their position in Christ has become a means by which they are able to conquer the wiles of the world. They have overcome the evil one by trusting in the word of God. You are strong. The word of God abides in you. This is what spiritual strength is. The word of God abiding in you. Whenever we learn about strength in the epistles, we see that it is related to our knowledge and application of doctrine. In 1 Corinthians 8, 7, Paul tells the Corinthian church, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol, uh, to the idol until now eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. What is the knowledge that they do not all know? That these gods are no gods at all. That there is only one true God. They have trusted in him for salvation. They are in the family of God, but they have not yet grown in the doctrine so that their conscience is not challenged by the old ways that they lived in. So when they see someone eating meat that has been sacrificed to an idol, that they think that has actually done something to that meat. This is weak doctrine. Those who are stronger in doctrine understand that that has no hold on that food. But for the one whose doctrine is weak, their conscience would be defiled. 
So he says, but food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. He is stating plainly the doctrine that these more mature, these stronger in God's word have come to understand. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Those with a knowledge of doctrine are put in juxtaposition to those who are weak. Romans 14, he does the same thing. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. When we understand and we apply doctrine, we grow in spiritual maturity. This means that our growth is directly tangential to our knowledge of Scripture. The more we know about who He is and all that He has done, the more we have foundation to grow, the more we have strength and power to grow. And so this strength, these young men who are strong, it cannot be separated from the next clause, that the Word of God abides in you. These are both simultaneously true. They are strong, and the Word of God abides in them. If the Word of God does not abide in them, they lose their strength. Once they have reached a level of spiritual maturity, if they let go of the Word of God, their strength also goes. They become carnal Christians. Christians who do not depend on the Spirit, but that depend on the flesh. See, a carnal Christian is not one that goes and lives licentiously, but it's one who does not trust in the things of God. One who trusts in his own power. And more often than not, this leads to legalism, not to licentiousness. So a carnal Christian could be one so obsessed with rules, so obsessed with strict doctrine, but poor doctrine. This is a weak Christian, one who has to build walls of rules around themselves to protect themselves from what they do not know. Rather, we should know God's word and stand strong in it. And we can look to the example of Christ. How did he demonstrate strength? While in the flesh, in the flesh of the body, energized by the spirit, how did he withstand temptation? In Matthew 4, we read, Jesus was led up by the spirit. Now that's very important. The spirit was leading him. This was not his will. In fact, in the book of Mark, it even says that the spirit drove him out. He was so pushed by the Spirit that his will was subservient to it, his will subservient to God's. But Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, then he became hungry. You see, now Jesus has an actual need, an actual bodily need, and it's a legitimate need. But Satan offers him an illegitimate way of filling that need. He does this to us all the time. We say, God, this is a need that I have, and I know that you are there to supply my needs. So where is it? And so we jump on any opportunity to get that need. And then we say, thank you, God, for giving that to me. But perhaps that was not in his will. Did we instead pray and seek his will in that situation? The tempter came up and said to him, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. It seems reasonable, doesn't it? But Jesus understood his task on earth. He understood that his task on earth was not to be filled with bread, but to do the will of God. And so he withstood the temptation of Satan. And how did he do so? Jesus said only, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Not only does he give us the doctrine of how we withstand the tempter, but he uses it in the same breath. He withstands the temptations of the devil by standing firm on the word of God. He quotes directly from Deuteronomy 8.3. And then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, 
Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now here's an interesting turn in the dialogue. Satan is now quoting scripture. What do we do? Well, if we don't know scripture well, and we hear scripture quoted to us incorrectly, we might think we've lost the argument. You see, Satan knew exactly what Jesus was doing. And he tried to trip him up, but guess what? Guess who knew God's word better? Jesus. And he knows that Satan has pulled Psalm 9111 out of context. Because the context of this whole passage is depending on the righteousness of God. And depending on the will of God. And God's will for David was that he become the king in Israel. So that no matter what, God's will could not be thwarted. And here Satan is asking Jesus to thwart the will of God by quoting scripture. Thank goodness Jesus knew his Hebrew Bible. But how often do we hear a scriptural rebuttal that's not actually so scriptural and we fall to pieces? because we simply do not know his word. This has happened to me more often times than I care to mention. And you know what it does? It drives me into my study and I just got to figure out what that passage means. You don't need to be a pastor to do that. We can all do that. When we hear something that does not jive with the allegory of scripture, we go and we search it out. We be like the Bereans. When Paul brought them doctrine that they did not expect, they sought it out and they found it in their Old Testaments. And they received the Messiah. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, let me correct your doctrine a bit here. It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus once again quotes from Deuteronomy. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Satan saw that he's not going to trick him by giving him false doctrine. Instead, Satan actually gets right to the heart of the issue. Why did Jesus come? Yes, he came to die and he came to save us. But for what end? To what purpose? Because God, when he first created this earth, created it with a kingdom purpose. For man to rule over this world with his will subject to God's. And that was thwarted. And so the rest of scripture is the story of how God restores that kingdom and fulfills the purpose of creation. And the very first plot twist is the need for redemption the need for salvation, the need for a savior. And that is fulfilled here in the gospels when Christ dies on the cross. But his ultimate purpose is to rule over this earth as a man and fulfill God's creation purpose. And Satan offers him the same domain. He says, you can have the kingdoms of this world. And you know what? You can have it apart from dying on the cross. You can have it apart from national rejection by your people. You can have it apart from all that pain and suffering if instead of becoming God's Messiah, you become my false Messiah. If you, Jesus, subject your will to me, Satan, I will give you all the kingdoms of this world. Now notice Jesus does not tell him you have no right to give me the kingdoms of this world. They belong to God. Because the kingdoms of this world are presently the possession of Satan. And we will look at that in a minute. But first, how does Jesus answer him? Jesus said to him, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Once again, quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. Now, why has he quoted only from the book of Deuteronomy? Because it is the book of Deuteronomy that tells Israel 
how God is going to reestablish the kingdom on this earth and that he is going to do it through Israel by placing a king on the throne of Israel. In Deuteronomy 17, 14, he tells them, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. Whose will are they supposed to follow? God's. God's will. God chooses the king. Because this king will reign over the nations. He will reign over all of creation. He is the Messiah, the eternal descendant of David. This was God's plan. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen. You shall set as a king over yourselves, and you may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Satan quoted back to, or Jesus quoted back to Satan, the very covenant that promises that God will place him as the king over this creation. And so we, like Jesus, should abide in the truth of God's word and trust it. Trust that he will bring about all that he has promised. John 8.31, Jesus says uh, to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. This is spiritual maturity. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Jesus, the night before he was crucified, praying to God the Father, speaking of what he has done on this earth in his prayers for his disciples, says, I have given them your word. I have preached to them doctrine. The world has hated them. The world is in opposition to God's word. Because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. He has asked God to mature them in their faith. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We stand on God's word. That is our strength. But now we have to deal with that issue of Satan's cosmos system. First, we'll need a definition of that, because it's been about a year since we looked at it. But it comes up in the text. 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What exactly is this world that we are told not to love? Now, first, I might remind you that John is very capable of saying exactly what he means, and he does not say here, hate the world. He says, do not love the world. John is one where we have to be very careful not to assume the opposite of what he is saying. When he says, do not love the world, he is not saying, hate the world. But he is saying, do not love the world. It's very simple, but you'd be amazed how many pages of commentaries deal with assuming what John means rather than just taking him at face value. But here's the issue that arises for most. In 1 John 2.15, when we are told not to love the world, they ask then, why does God say in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Because we have the conflict of two kingdoms going on here. The kingdom that was stolen, God still loves those who have been stolen in it. And in his purpose, beginning in Genesis 3, of redeeming that world through his son Jesus, he loved them in order to offer salvation. John 3.17 adds, For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So God's love for this world results in God saving this world, somehow changing, not leaving the same, restoring. But restoring to what? You see, the cosmos, which is just the Greek word for the world, 
but used in a larger, larger broader sense of creation. The cosmos began in Genesis 1.1. The Bible is rightly the story of the cosmos, God's creation for his glory. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is God's cosmos system. God's perfect creation. That is why on every day of creation, we see that God looked at it and saw that it was good. Because God was creating a kingdom. And over that kingdom, he placed a monarch. One in his image. To rule on his behalf, not in his own will, but in God's will. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the cattle, and over all the earth. Amerism, talking about everything. From this to that and all the way to the end. Let them have dominion. This was God's purpose in creation. And until this purpose is fulfilled, God's creation has not been successful. That is why this earth cannot pass away until Christ sits victorious over creation. If it passes away and God just creates a new world, then we have to say God failed in this world, but succeeded in the next. No, God will succeed and has succeeded in this world. We just haven't seen it all play out yet. But then another cosmos system was created within this one. Isaiah 14, we read, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. Quite an ominous way to begin, but he is talking about the fall of Satan, a created being within God's cosmos system who decides to subvert God's kingdom. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above God, the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. Three of Satan's five I will statements. And the word is right in there. Satan's will, not God's will. Satan has not subjected himself to God's will. But has interspersed within God's creation a distinct different, separate will apart from God. This is the cosmos kingdom of Satan. Because a kingdom is dominated by the will of the sovereign. When God created and we were in fellowship with him in the garden, it was because we were subject to his will. We were free agents and we chose willingly to follow him until the day when a different will was injected into creation, a will that was distinct and different from God's. God established the kingdom of creation to be ruled by the mediation of man subject to God's will, and Satan interposed his own kingdom by subjecting man to his will, to which man willingly submitted. You see, the kingdoms of this world is really the will to which we serve. We don't really have a will of our own that we can serve. There are two wills in this creation. There is the will of God and there is the will of Satan, which is to subvert God. And in Isaiah 14, 14, his last two I will statements, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will make myself like the most high. I will be like God, Satan says. This is Satan's cosmos system. When we enthrone a different will besides God's in our lives, we are enthroning Satan in his will. Lewis Berry Chafer puts it this way. It's a little more technical, but edifying, hopefully. The cosmos is a vast order or system that Satan has promoted, which conforms to his ideals, aims, and methods. It is civilization now functioning apart from God, a civilization in which none of its promoters really 
expect God to share, who assign to God no consideration in respect to their projects, nor do they ascribe any causativity to him. This system embraces its godless governments, conflicts, armaments, jealousies, its education, culture, religious, religions of morality and pride. It is that sphere in which man lives. It is what he sees, what he employs. To the uncounted multitudes, it is all that they ever know, so long as they live on this earth. It is properly styled the satanic system, which phrase, which phrase is in many instances a justified interpretation of the so meaningful word cosmos. It is literally a cosmos diabolicus. It is the devil's cosmos system. And so the real issue is the will. To whomever the will of man flows, rules the kingdoms of this earth. When our wills are not subjected to God's will, we are operating apart from him and within Satan's cosmos system. When we are not serving God's will, we are serving Satan since Satan's will is for God's rule to be snubbed and his kingdom to be subverted. So when Satan offered Jesus all the kingdoms of this earth, he had every right to do so because what he was offering Jesus was the adoration of mankind apart from God the Father, outside of God's will for him as the savior of this world. He offered Jesus to go down with the sinking Titanic. Come with me, he says. Perhaps, maybe, if Satan's Messiah is divine himself, then he will have some hope of lifting his own throne above the Most High. Satan is a fool, and we see that on every page of Scripture. But unfortunately, we are more foolish more often, and we fall right into his foolishness. So how was this creation of the cosmos system? Where do we see it in Scripture? We see it before the flood in that previous civilization which God destroyed, from Eden moving to Enoch. It enters mankind's sphere in the garden in Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. We don't know how old she was, but she was probably a pretty young believer. And she learned the hard way to take God's word at face value. Because Satan here comes and asks her to doubt God's word. He is quoting God back to her. He's changed it a little. She didn't catch that. But he is asking her to doubt God's word. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the tree of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Uh-oh, that's not what God said. She built a wall around it to try to help her keep it, but that was not God's word. That's the problem. Because we're not protected by man's walls around scripture, we are protected by God's word. Genesis 2.16, this was the command that God gave them. From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Satan saw that Eve does not value God's word very much. It was easy for him to inject false doctrine into her way of thinking, to throw her off course. And when he saw how easy it was, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. He denies God's word. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He distorts God's word. He doubts, then he denies, and then he distorts. And we fall for it all the time. But this is where the cosmos system began, where Satan's will entered creation. 
and man willingly subjected himself to it. And we see it grow out through Adam and Eve's children, especially in Cain, who had the provision of a sacrifice but chose his own self-righteousness over God's righteousness. He chose self-creation over God's creation. Genesis 4.17, we see that Cain had relations with his wife and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch and he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Cain had left the fellowship of God. He walked away. He headed into the land of Nod, which means wandering. And he created for himself a new system, a city. And we'll see that this is not the last time man builds a city in rebellion against God. And what is that city occupied with? Not the things of God, not the will of God, but the things in the will of man. And in so doing, the things in the will of Satan. Adah gave birth to Jabal. Adah is um, a descendant. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. As for Zillah, she gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron, and the sisters of Tubal-Cain was Nama. A very cultured group, no? But a godless group. One that cares only for the things of this world. Useful idiots in the schemes of Satan. God had to wipe that civilization clean because the entire world became corrupt together with them. And when he re-established mankind on the earth through Noah, he told them to spread out, to divide up. In that way, he would protect them so that they would not all become corrupt together. They chose instead to build a tower, to have one world government, not under God's will, but under man's will. And there's the problem. The Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the languages of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. But when we get to Revelation, we see a mystery revealed, that this did not take care of the cancer of Babel, but it prolonged man's time on earth so that God could take care of it with his king. When we get to Revelation 17, we see that Babel has been operating in the background of this civilization since it was scattered. The angel says to John, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of this earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast with it full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of the abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. What an opulent display this world has to offer. But on her forehead, a name was written, a mystery. And a mystery is not something unknown, but something formerly unknown. Something that scripture and scripture alone has revealed. And that is that Babylon the Great, which is simply the Greek word for the Hebrew word Babel. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. To be a mother, it must be the source. Babel is the source of all cultural harlotry. And harlotry is adherence to a will other than God's. It is used continually in that way in the Old Testament. Whenever Israel plays the harlot, she goes after other gods, seeking the will of man, the will of Satan, and not the will of God. And so here, the source of that rebellion on earth is Babel. Satan's first kingdom 
after the flood. And you see, he is trying to build a kingdom because God is building a kingdom. Just like he is seeking to have a Messiah because God has a Messiah. Satan knows that this is God's creation and it operates in God's created order. And so he mimics God's created order. And he builds Babel, where God promises a new Jerusalem. He deceives the world with a satanic trinity. Satan, the false Christ, and the false prophet. Precisely because the Godhead is a trinity. God the Father, whose will is obeyed by the other parts of the Godhead. God the Spirit, who reveals and energizes. And God the Messiah, God the Son, who is king over this world. Satan is trying to do exactly what God has done so that he can call himself the king of this world. And many people give him that praise. Many people allow him to be king over this world. But there will come a day where he will no longer reign over the kingdoms of this world. 1 John 5.19 tells us explicitly, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That program then of Satan's cosmos system, how does it affect us today in the church? How does Babel apply to us? How does the tribulation period and Babylon apply to us? Because it's the same cosmos system. The same Babel, which is the source of the future kingdom of the Antichrist, is the source of Satan's rule today. And that is why in 1 John 2.15, we are told, do not love the world nor the things of the world. We are not to love Satan's cosmos system because it is opposed to the will of God. And notice that is exactly what John is doing here. When our will is in love with the world, our will will not be in love with God. It is a one or the other situation. I'll skip that. James 4.1, we read this in action. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Speaking to a saved congregation of believers, what is the source of their quarrels and conflicts? And that's a good question. If we are believers, if we are part of the body of Christ, if we are indwelled with the Spirit, why are there quarrels and conflicts among us? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Yes, the source is the flesh, not the spirit. You see, we have two natures, and we choose to yield to one or the other. You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. What is that motive? Selfish lust, envy. He just said it. Self-will and not God's will. Because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. James says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? These are diametrically opposed. Your will is subject to God's cosmos system or to Satan's. But Satan's is present and active in this world today. God's is of another world. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now notice once again what John is not saying. He does not say that the Father does not love him. It is two objects of love being opposed. Either we love the world or we love the Father. If our love is given to the world, then it is not given to the Father. We are the subject 
God or the world is the object, and love is the verb. James 4, 7, James's solution. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, James is quite a firebrand. He calls them all sorts of names in this epistle, but we have to uh, love him despite that. <laughs> but what is a double-minded? One who's trying to serve two masters. One who is trying to live in the world of God while actively living in the world of Satan. He says, stop it. Knock it off. Be of a single mind. Submit to God. Submit to God's will and resist the devil. Resist the devil's temptations that lead you into serving his will. And these really are the enemies of the believer. There are three of them active today. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Now we've all met the person who, uh, whenever they sin, their answer is, the devil made me do it. Well, that's probably not true. The devil may have helped tempt you to get there, but we'll see when we get to the millennial kingdom that the devil doesn't really have to be there for the flesh to be empowered. He's going to be locked up for a thousand years. Take the tempter away and guess what? You still get sin. Unfortunately, I'm going to skip the devil and the flesh and go to the world because that's where our passage is today. The world, how does the world make itself an enemy of the believer? For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Its source is in the world, it's not from the Father, so the lusts of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, what is it? What is it and how do we avoid it? To simplify a bit, the lust of the flesh is the desire to do what is contrary to God's will, an activity, a behavior. The lust of the eye is to have what is contrary to God's will. How often do we decide what God needs to give us? Probably more often than we ask him what he wants to give us. And the pride of life, to be something contrary to the will of God. Now, this one's a tricky one. Instead of knowing the truth, we want to be the one who knows the truth. Instead of nurturing someone, we want to be the one who nurtures someone. Self-glorification. The pride of life. We want to be the one, rather than God being the one. We see this right from the beginning. You see, Eve had a tempter. The devil was right there. He offered his distortion of God's word. He took her firm foundation out from under her. But there's pretty good argument that he was no longer present with her in verse 6. The devil did what he needed to do, and he got her to doubt God's word. He could leave at that point because the catalyst had already been made. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. This is the thought process going on in her head. Notice the absence of God. She took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. So the tempter tempted the flesh and the flesh operated within the world. This is the trinity of temptation. Her lust of the flesh was to do what God said not to do. To use the fruit of that one tree for food. An activity God had forbidden. The lust of her eyes was to have the fruit. Not only did she see that it was good for food when God said it was not good for food, it delighted her eyes. Something attracted her to this evil. 
and her pride of life was to be wise apart from God's means. You see, Satan is the one who told Eve that wisdom came through eating the tree. God did not offer wisdom for eating the tree or for not eating the tree. The test that he put there was so that wisdom would be found, but she did not have to eat the tree to become wise. In fact, to demonstrate more wisdom would have been to submit her will to God. That would have been wisdom. How about Jesus' temptation then? The lust of the flesh that the world offered him was to do miracles to feed himself, opposed to the will of God. The lust of the eye was to have kingdoms without the pain of death. The pride of life was to be the Messiah without the world rejecting him. Jesus withstood by the word of God. Eve fell the moment she let go of the word of God. We need to know our doctrine. In 1 John 2.17, John writes, The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God continues forever. It is true that this world is passing away. It is destined for termination. Not only this civilization that's going to be undone by the tribulation, followed by the messianic kingdom, but even that world, the messianic kingdom, once God has fulfilled his purpose in this creation, the whole creation will disappear. It will be burned up. And God will make a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell forever. And the throne of God and the throne of his king, Jesus, will merge. And they will rule together over the eternal state. And so in Romans 8.19, after Paul has dealt with the world of the flesh and of the devil, he says, The anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. All of creation is waiting for the revelation of what saved man will be when God restores them. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In other words, all of creation was put under a curse, not because creation wanted to be cursed, not because in following its own will it wanted this curse upon it, but God had to put the curse on this world in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, the beginning of eternal life. Even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This parallels with what John has already said. I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already Shining. Eternal life has already begun in the believer. Life that is consistent with the world to come. Life that will not end, that has no termination because we have been born again. A birth that cannot be undone. And a life that cannot be diminished. And so we have every right and every ability when we seek God's will and not our own to live by means of the Spirit to walk by means of the Spirit, to enjoy that eternal life now as we await the new body. When sin will be done away with, when the tempter will be gone, the world will be gone and the flesh will be gone. Righteousness will dwell perfectly with Jesus Christ as the righteous King. And the one who does the will of God 
continues forever. Now, I don't like the translation here, the one who does the will of God lives forever, because that's not the verb. The verb has nothing to do with sozo, nothing to do with life or living. It's the same word, mene, to abide, to continue. Translators often translate it as living forever, but it is living not in the sense of existence. It is living in the sense of the fullness of life. Jesus says he came to give life and to give life more abundantly. Those who are living abundant life by submitting their will to God's, that doesn't change. You will live the same life now that you will get then even better. The life that we live in the flesh today is going to disappear. Everything that we concern our time with, the countless movies we watch, countless music we listen to, the projects that we do, the books that we read, all of this is nothing. But there is one book that we can occupy our time with that has eternal value. It gives us strength for today to live in this world that is dead set against us. And it is a raging enemy against us because it has lost the first battle. We have been given new life. The only thing that the world can do to us now is to make us useless in that new life and to keep us from enjoying that new life. And so when your will is not submitted to God, that is all you're doing. Hurting yourself, keeping yourself from enjoying the life that God has given you now, storing up treasures on earth that moth and rust destroy, and failing to do anything in preparation for the world to come. And you see, that's one striking thing about maturity, is the older you get, the more concerned you are with the future. When I was little, I did not care one bit about what was going to happen tomorrow. I mean, unless it was something cool like my birthday. But I cared a lot about what was going on right now. I mean, that's the problem of teenagers, right? They don't see what's going to happen tomorrow if they do that stupid thing today. They're not concerned with the future. If I spend my whole paycheck the day I get it, the next two weeks are going to be pretty tough. As you grow up, you learn to be concerned with the future. As you grow up in spiritual maturity, you learn to let go of the things of today and look to the things of eternity. That is being a father in Christ. And so young men, which again is just young people, maturing people in the faith seek to become fathers by putting all your hope and all your trust in the future and not in the right now. Things don't work out today. They're not supposed to. This is not God's cosmos system. It's against you. Why would you want it to work out for you? Why do you want everything Satan offers you to feel so good? Plan for eternity and store up rewards in heaven that moth and rust cannot destroy. Hebrews 12.1 Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, we are training for eternity with him. We are training for reigning together with him. And we want to be useful the moment we set foot on the restored creation. In conclusion, then, our main idea for this morning, a dynamic knowledge of God's word is the only defense against the attacks of the evil one and the temptations of the world. The believer who never matures in the word never matures at all and will be hopelessly lost seeking something eternal in a temporal world. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are so thankful for the gift 
of the Spirit, for the salvation in Christ, that we can stand firm in all that has been completed for us on the cross, that has been given to our account the moment we believed, so that we have the ability, that we have the power as we depend on the Spirit and not on the flesh, to be enjoying, even today, the eternal life that we will enjoy with you for eternity. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.